Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Zout. And today, in the spirit of collaboration in the fintech world, I'm sitting down with none other than Simon Taylor, co-founder of 11FS. I consider Wharton Fintech and 11FS to be the two gold standards in financial technology content. Most of you probably know, but 11FS is a challenger consultancy and budding fintech empire. They help the world's top founders build financial services challengers, conduct custom market research, bring PMs behind the scenes of various fintech applications, and of course, have their own media arm. In today's episode, Simon and I dive into his journey through fintech and how 11FS is building a challenger consultancy, the current state of the crypto market and if it has finally crossed the chasm, the power of stable coins and interest-bearing accounts, a lot about NFTs, sports memorabilia, and NBA Top Shot, our thoughts on Clubhouse, And of course, a very fun rapid fire round at the end, including his favorite follows on Twitter. Let's get started. Well, Simon, welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. We're very excited to have you on as a guest today in a relatively rare moment of collaboration between at least what I consider the two gold standards of FinTech content. Here, here. I'm a massive fan. Thank you so much for having me. I love what you guys are doing. Really grateful for being here. And likewise as well, I think your YouTube presence is something that we envy right now. Maybe that's Mm -hmm. a a goal for next year. And of course, congratulations on 11FS releasing their 500th episode. I shuddered when I saw it because I know how much work it has been for Miguel and I to put out about 150. I can't imagine almost 4X. The the credit goes to the team. There's a team full of people there that make our lives so much easier. Um, You know, producer Laura, I want to talk about Alex. I want to talk about Olivia, Hannah, Tobias. That team does such an incredible job. And then all of the folks on our marketing side, we are really, really fortunate to have a world-class team. And the production values of the content you see is all down to those guys. They do an incredible job, and I feel very fortunate to work with them. Yeah, absolutely. It's very crisp. I love the content. Your team is doing a great job. So before we jump into your background, for some of our listeners who might not be familiar, what exactly is 11FS and what does it do? Yeah, well, we're the world's smallest conglomerate, right? So if you've heard of challenger banks, we think of ourselves as a challenger consultancy. There's actually three parts to the business. So a lot of us come from a background of having either worked in big banks and made those big banks do something in digital or having built challenger banks. So my co-founder, Jason, was one of the co-founders of both Starling and Monzo. My CTO, Ewan, was CTO at Nutmeg, one of the big robos in the UK. He was also involved in the early days of the bank, then went on to become both Starling and Monzo. And then David Breer, who's my CEO and co-founder, was the guy who ran Gartner for Europe, Middle East, and Africa. And his vision was like, what does a consultancy look like in the future? And it turns out his vision had three parts to it, and it's 100% credit to him. Part number one, it's a modern day media company. So every business will be a media company. It's Gary Vaynerchuk. It's all of that kind of stuff. Well, actually, that's the bit that you probably know about. That's the podcast. It's the YouTube. It's the reports. It's all of that kind of stuff. But that's a business, right? So we have sponsors and there's a whole network of work that goes into making that happen. But what's really interesting about that is it's a platform for every fintech. So if you're working at a fintech and you're out there, like get in touch because we'd love to feature you in the media side of the business. But what's really fortunate about that is we establish ourselves and our own brand 
brand for the second part of what we do, which is the services business. And the services business is really operators and builders. So it's people who are working in research, customer UX, UI, design, um, product management, uh, engineering, compliance, people who've either worked in a fintech before or worked in a bank before, but really deeply love this stuff. So in the services business, we've built brand new digital challenger banks in the UK, Hong Kong, Middle East, North America. We're currently working in LATAM. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that we do. Probably the simplest way to say what that services business does is it builds banks. And we think they're the best that are in the world. And then there's the third part to the business. So if you step back, media business, services business, product business. Two main products. Product number one is 11FS Pulse. 11FS Pulse is like YouTube for fintech from behind the login screen. So, hey, have you heard about that new feature that Current has done? Have you heard about that new feature that Alibaba just launched or Alipay just launched in China? Guess what? We got videos of that. So see behind the login screen of what the latest fintechs are doing and understand kind of what makes it good. So we rank and rate it. So like YouTube, it's kind of got a score and all of that kind of good stuff. So product managers and designers absolutely love 11FS Pulse. And then lastly, 11FS Foundry is like our take on the future of banking architecture. So it turns out there's a whole bunch of really great companies right now. I'm thinking about Alloy. I'm thinking about Hummingbird. I'm thinking about Socure. I'm thinking about Persona. All of these great companies who do like a piece of the banking stack really well. The problem you've then got is you've got to build a whole bunch of non-differentiated code to integrate all of those things together to build your customer proposition. And it's kind of every fintech finds themselves in that position. So you've got this really interesting trade-off of like, how do I make sure that I'm working with the best providers, but I'm able to deliver customer propositions? And that's where we see 11FS Foundry really playing in, tying together your modern day core with all of these providers to deliver propositions to market. And we're super excited about that. And we've been working with some interesting partners behind the scenes to get that up. So stepping back, long answer to your question. Sorry about that. That modern day media business that becomes a services business. When in that services business, we see the same problem time and time again. So that throws off a product business, maybe more product businesses in the future, who knows? But that's how you become a challenger consultancy. Rather than just selling the people, we want to stay relatively lean as an organization and really throw off more and more product businesses over time. So it's been a super exciting journey so far. Yeah, absolutely. And that was a great overview. Thank you for that. As someone that worked in consulting before business school, I thought about this all the time. This cannot be the model forever. There will be new challenges that can come in just, as you said, so lean, so nimble, so many different products and services that they'll be able to just do such a great job and steal a lot of market share. So most of us in the fintech world now know today's Simon Taylor, and now we know about 11FS. But where did you first get interested in fintech? What was your role at Barclays and what's really kept you in this industry? Do you know, it was actually pre-Barclays. I used to work for TSIS, which is now Global Payments. And I uh, I was a BlackBerry user. This tells you how long ago it was. And I was a big guy. I, I had to adopt Twitter. I was super early on Twitter. And I saw a bunch of people talking about this thing called like Cybos Inner Tribe. And they were talking about finance. And I found it kind of interesting. I was like, what's Cybos? What's this Inner Tribe thing? And I clicked on the hashtag. And there were some really interesting personalities. There was a Dave Birch guy. And there's Debbie Mohan. And there's all these interesting people. And I was like, I want to follow these people. Turns out there's like this fintech conference thing happening. And so I went down the rabbit hole of that whole thing. And it was just like, I don't know, I just followed my nose. 
And then when that happened, I also saw like the next day, how freaky is this? TechCrunch puts out an article about Jack Dorsey leaving Twitter to go do this other startup in payments. And I was like, this is big. So I emailed the guy who ran sales for Europe at the time, the late Bob Evans, what a gentleman, and said, I think this is going to be a big thing. And this guy never heard of me. And he could have fired me, but instead he took a risk and um, put me on to a chap called John Goodale. And they created a job for me as head of innovation. And my job there was to figure out what the new products were, sell it to the first client and hand it to the sales team. And we did that in 2010. We launched a second mobile banking app in the UK and we got that to market in 16 weeks, hugely successful. And then shortly thereafter, I was headhunted by Barclays to come do some work for them on the payment side and work on Pingit, which was their mobile banking application. Having done that, I got a really good feel for how the plumbing works behind the scenes, how payments really work. I'd done a lot in cards payments, but now I was dealing with the UK equivalent of ACH, and I was dealing with SWIFT and international payments and international wires. So really getting the deep infrastructure understanding. And then I was asked by Derek White, who was chief digital officer at the time, to help him build the Rise platform. So Barclays Rise is you know, very familiar to you in New York. There's another right. one in Tel Aviv. So I was in one of the founding team that helped build that out initially. And then the CTO at the time, Michael Hart, asked me to look, become head of blockchain R&D. And sort of taking all of that payments knowledge, go learn more about capital markets, work with the capital markets division and figure out the strategy there. And I was blessed as well at the time back in late 13, early 14 to be one of the earlier members of the London Ethereum community as well, sort of helping that get off the ground. And all of the London-based Ethereum meetups used to happen in a Barclays space. So I was heavily involved in that. And lo and behold, I was having a great time doing that. And then one day I got a phone call from David Breer who, you know, my co-founder, CEO and North Star in 11FS said, have you heard of Challenger Banks? And I said, yeah, of course I have. Have you heard of a Challenger Consultancy? And I said, what's that? And he said, I don't know. Come help me figure it out. That's and the rest pitch. is history. Yeah, he's, he's a heck of a sales guy. Yeah, I can imagine. So last question before moving on, what was blockchain like in 2014? You know, the general perception is that banks were a bit asleep at the wheel during this time leading up to the 2017 boom. What was the appetite like outside of, you know, your organization? Outside of the organization, well, yeah, absolutely. I think the people wanted to work with a global brand, right? That was huge. That was never the issue. And what I really respected and loved about the culture at Barclays was the intellectual rigor. So funnily enough, I worked a lot with the AML and the policy and the risk teams, and they all just wanted to learn. So by bringing in some of the externals, like that organization did some incredible learning and, and did extremely well. And, and I think was able to do some quite interesting things. One of the world's first, if not the world's first uh, trade finance transaction on, on a blockchain and crypto. I think the challenge is I step back and look at all banks back then was just the prioritization of like the tech arguably wasn't ready for them. They were too early to the party. And yet at the same time, they've got such scale and massive imperatives of staying complying and making sure that they're looking after their customers and delivering for their own shareholders that the timing just wasn't quite there. So they naturally looked for, well, if we can't launch new products and really do a go-to-market because the tech might not be ready for the kind of scale we'd bring to it, then what do we do instead? And they started looking for efficiency improvements. And that's not wrong. It's just different to how an entrepreneur would look at it. And quietly in the background now, people don't give a lot of credit to the IBMs and the Accentures of the world, but they've been doing an awful lot of stuff getting trade finance onto uh, various DLT, blockchain and crypto based um, technologies. 
And like nobody tells you that headline because it's not exciting that trade right. finance paper got reduced. But you know what? That that's happening. So they've actually done some quite impressive things. It's just not as exciting as this new token has launched. Yeah, and of course, I do want to talk about crypto, and then we'll get to some DeFi and NFT, which I know you've been spending a lot of time on the last few months. But over the last、mm -hmm. few months, looking from the ten thousand feet above you, it can feel a lot like twenty seventeen all over、mm -hmm. again, with prices just surging. A lot of speculative trading. Thankfully, maybe the Robinhood YOLO bros have taken some of the media thunder from the Bitcoin bros. But personally, when I start zooming in, I'm seeing significantly more thoughtful analysis, more serious news coverage, and obviously just massive institutional adoption. We saw PayPal, Visa, and of course Tesla and Square adding it to their balance sheets and regulatory clarity. So, do you see this as really the turning point for crypto that the maximists and evangelists that have been calling for? And if so, what is really different this time around? Yeah, it's interesting. It, the tale of how you know you're in a bubble. People start saying it's different this time around. Oh yeah. <laughs> and so, look, it's not not a bubble, but it's also Bitcoin either goes to zero dollars or it doesn't. And I don't think it goes to zero dollars. It was actually a good friend of mine, Colin Platt, says it either goes to zero or a million, and I don't think it goes to zero. Now that is not investment advice, and there is no time horizon attached <laughs> to that, right? So this could be over a hundred or a thousand years, but it won't disappear. And if it doesn't disappear, you have to ask yourself a bunch of interesting questions. So what does it become, and why? And in order to do that, you need to unpack. The role of the U.S. dollar, the role of stimulus and dollar printing, and how seriously is that a threat to the U.S. dollar as a global reserve currency? And will Bitcoin become a gold standard one day? Maybe, sure.、Uh, will it happen soon? Probably not. But as investors are facing lots of dollar printing. As part of, they're looking to go risk on. They're looking for things that are a bit riskier to to add to their portfolio to help balance that out. Which is why the risky assets seem frothy at the moment, and that could be one just giant powder keg of a bubble. But if you put that aside for a second, that doesn't mean that what's going on isn't legitimate or long term or interesting or exciting. All of those things can still be true. It can still be really, really interesting. For my own personal thesis, there is quite likely going to be a smaller role for the U.S. dollar going forward, with China now trying to bring forward the Renminbi, Europe, the euro being adopted for various trading corridors around the world. So we're heading to a multi-reserve currency kind of model, and in that model, you start to think. Well, if there are multiple reserve currencies, what's the standard that connects them all? And you, you、right. could see how it's actually quite logical, right? And then there's worries: is that standard going to be Bitcoin? Is it going to be some sort of CBDC? Will there be international cooperation? Given the current climate, I kind of doubt that. <laughs> well, indeed, and so much like you're seeing the internet split, and there are different models.、Right. There's the India's internet models, the China internet model, there's even the European GDPR data privacy model. Like that's all happening, and the same things happening in currency. Meanwhile, Bitcoin's just out here doing its thing, and people are stacking、right. sats on Square Cash app, <laughs> and and so it's like a, there's this whole thing happening that's kind of neat. My general advice with crypto is never ever invest anything you can't afford to lose, and really pay attention to how much you're learning. Learn by doing. There are other people that like to YOLO into this stuff and go absolutely nuts. I could never recommend doing that. I think that could end really, really badly. If we are in the roaring twenties, then the thirties ain't going to be great. <laughs> absolutely, and that's my advice as well. I get. So many texts all the time, and another sign that we could be in a bubble of people that have no business 
investing in cryptocurrency. But at, at the same time, I think given where we're going right now and with this money printing rapid inflation and the use cases and adoption happening, I think it is reasonable to have at least one to 5% of your assets moving forward. Again, if you can afford it and if you can stomach at least a five-year investment horizon. Yeah, is absolutely. What I really say. And so the question I'd ask is then what comes after Bitcoin, right? Because I always think about the classic book from 91, Crossing the Chasm. And right. I think for me, like the innovators, the early adopters had been in this space for quite some time. What's interesting to me about where Bitcoin is right now is you're starting to see that early majority. So yes, we had the punters and the speculators in the 2017 bubble, but people that are stacking in Square Cash App might just be doing something quite different. And for me, when Cash added it, it became something that became part of the furniture when PayPal added it. And now we're seeing many, many others start to look at it. It is whether you think it's the right answer or not, crossing the chasm in some way, shape or form. And then you could almost wind the clock back three or four years and start to look at, well, what's behind that? This whole DeFi space, the NFT space, all of that, that probably has a role to play too. And like all things, when it's a bit young, it's a bit loud and a bit chaotic and it's drawing in pencil on the walls and you kind of want to tell it off sometimes, <laughs> but it's also super creative. And so like, let's keep those things in context. Yeah. And so I love that you brought up crossing the chasm because in your last FinTech Brain Food newsletter, which you all should subscribe to, you did mention that. And you mentioned three potential things that could be crossing the chasm moving forward. And these are stable coins as a payment option, which I'm very fascinated by, DeFi, and then NFT. Mm-hmm. So can you briefly give an overview of each for our listeners in case they're not familiar? Yeah, so stable coins, unlike the other quote-unquote crypto assets, cryptocurrencies, are, as they sound on the tin, they are designed to be stable. So one way of doing that might be, for instance, one USDC or USDT coin is exactly or as close as possible equivalent to a US dollar. There are other ways of achieving it, but the simplest is just a one-to-one peg. You buy one of these tokens, and in theory, somewhere in a bank account is as a dollar sitting there that that's redeemable for. So simple way of thinking about it. It's a coin that looks and feels like a dollar, but you can move it at the speed of an email. And the technology is built with APIs around it. So it's a permissionless open stack to be able to integrate to any wallet, any mobile application that you want to work with. So if you compare that to ACH and Wire, there's some really good fintechs out there now that kind of abstract the pain away from ACH and Wire and are building really good RTP kind of experiences. Cash App has done a great job on consumer. What Modern Treasury is doing on, I think, the business side is super exciting. But the rails they're using, they're just hiding the pain. Like the underlying infrastructure is still very, very old. Imagine if you could, if Square Cash App or Modern Treasury could plug into this modern digital rail that is permissionless and a utility that runs and operates like email. That's what stablecoins potentially bring. Does that bring down the cost? Does it bring down the risk? Does it increase transparency? Yes, to all of that. And I think it makes it really, really exciting for those reasons. The other thing is, at the moment, those things are primarily used by crypto traders as a way of like a way of cashing out of their kind of crypto positions and their crypto assets and dealing with something that's dollar-like or local currency-like without going all the way back to the transactional rails. So you've almost got this alternative reality where stable coins and crypto assets are just this whole alternative market structure that's emerged that you don't necessarily need to on-off ramp. And now what starts to get interesting is you think, well, if I'm a software engineer somewhere and I already have a little bit of crypto and I'm working inside of a startup, 
would I want to be paid in regular US dollars into my direct deposit account? Or would I want to be paid in USDC? Because that USDC, if it were more available and I could spend it as easily as I can spend my US dollars, actually, that's pretty, that's got some interesting side effects. So a lot of wallets right now are offering something like 10 to 12% APY on those coins. Well, that's a pretty good deal compared to what you see inside of a lot of the savings and checking kind of products that are out there. Now, it's worth saying that is an apples to orange comparison. So what you're getting in a savings account is a savings account with a bank that stands behind it that's FDIC insured. Right. What you're getting with USDC is, is something that's a little bit riskier. But actually, you know, if you're 20-something and you work in software, maybe that's a risk worth looking at. Yeah. And following up, that was going to be my next question, because I don't think many people are really aware of how powerful this compounding interest can be. If you are mm -hmm. getting paid or just putting your savings in USDC in a Celsius or a BlockFi. But the question, of course, becomes one, is this secure? But then second, how are these wallets getting these rates of 10 to 12%? You know, mm -hmm. my Celsius right now, I think is like 12.2% versus, you know, my 0.6% in Marcus. How is this sustainable? Yeah. So I think there's a couple of things going on. One, these markets have very, they're very thinly traded. There's not a lot of liquidity there and they're early. And you see this with any thinly traded asset that there's a lot bigger margins to be made in that. And so there are people deep into DeFi making 90, 100, countless percentages, APYs. But what they're doing is they're coming up with all kinds of complex trades and sort of taking a lot of risk in that market. And therefore, what they want to do is they want to borrow to be able to take that risk. And so by building these liquidity pools, what you do is you're essentially lending money to these people that are taking way more risk than you, and you make a small return. So they're happy to pay for that risk in return for them being able to go make more money with it on leverage, as it were. So you're funding their risky activity. There's a chance they might not be able to pay back. But over the long haul, it seems to be working out. So it's almost like banks historically would have a treasury function that would sort of take your deposits and then lend it out to other people. That's the classic model. But the other thing they could do is in capital markets, they could make that money work harder for them. From a consumer perspective, you weren't getting all of the benefit of that second thing of how they're making that money work harder in capital markets. What DeFi is doing is almost kind of cutting out the middleman and going directly to the traders. It's almost as if you're acting as you're providing the margin for those other people. Now, the wallet provider is actually sort of being a middleman. They're helping you manage that treasury and helping you manage some of that risk, and they may even be insuring some of it. But there's a lot more risk being taken with those products, and they're thinly traded. So I don't know if those APYs will be there in 10 years' time, but they may be a little bit higher than you see from a savings account, but they're not savings accounts. Actually, they look a lot more like an index. They look a lot more like an S&P or a NASDAQ tracker from the level of risk they have, because you're making the aggregate benefit of all of the trades happening in the market. So moving on to the third one, I do want to get to this because it's so fascinating. NFTs, what are they and what in the world is NBA Top Shot? <laughs> Good question. So non-fungible tokens. So a fungible token is where if I give you a dollar and you give me a dollar back, nothing has changed. But if I give you the original Mona Lisa and you give me a copy of the Mona Lisa, guess what? You win in that deal. So the Mona Lisa is non-fungible. The dollar is fungible because it has an equivalence of value. And it turns out in the real world and in the digital world, this becomes super helpful. 
So in the digital world, historically, if I sent you a spreadsheet or an email, you now have a copy of that spreadsheet or email, and I have a copy. It's an exact replica. That's how digital works. And that's why we saw DRM and all of that stuff start to emerge. But what was unique about Bitcoin is the scarcity. Though if I sent you a Bitcoin, you now have that Bitcoin and I no longer do, and we can prove that because we came to consensus about it and we use right. technology to do it. So it turns out when you apply this to Bitcoin is fungible. So if I send you a Bitcoin and you send me a Bitcoin, actually we've netted out. But if we come back to the Mona Lisa's, what's the digital equivalent of that that's really hot right now? And I think about baseball cards. Like that whole sports memorabilia space is just absolutely on fire generally. So NBA Top Shot comes along and goes, you know what's better than a baseball card? 10 seconds of NBA history. You can own the original 10 seconds, just timestamped by the NBA, just a little bit special. And it kind of reminds me of like the Wu-Tang Clan did an album where there was only 10 right. copies of that album that are original and ever made. So humans understand scarcity and will pay more for one of the original 10. Somebody may leak that and copy it, but it doesn't mean those original 10 don't have value. So that's exactly what's happening in non-fungible tokens. People are getting really excited by buying these original scarce things. And yes, maybe some of that is driven by the speculative mania that's in all of the markets. But you know, baseball cards as a theme and moving towards digital art as a theme was happening anyway. So that non-fungible token space gets super interesting because it's a use case where you don't need to give a crap about the technology to understand, like, why do I want to own that moment? Because I care about that sport. Like the people who are buying that stuff are not buying it to be part of the crypto economy. They're buying it to own that moment and to be one of the only people that owns that rare, unique moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's such a passion economy right now, especially with the NBA. And I mean, it's not just buying what well, Michael Jordan, iconic dunk or, you know, his game six shot. It's Tyler Harrow hitting a three in the middle of the third quarter and it's selling. It's really unbelievable. And I joined the Discord just for research. And like you said, it's really just basketball fanatics that probably don't know much about blockchain, distributed ledger technology, NFTs, anything, but know that they're getting a piece of history from their favorite player. They're starting to, you know, bet and say, hey, Tyler Hero or Spencer Dinwiddie is going to be a star in another year or two, or they're going to have a big breakout season. And this is going to be really exciting. And I saw even Gary Vaynerchuk, we mentioned earlier, just tweeted, I think it was yesterday that he got maybe his first NFT and it was a Joao Felix card. It was indeed, yeah. So he's, I think, on So Rare, I think it was, or it might have been, I can't remember the exact I think platform. it was So Rare, yeah. Yeah, I think it was on So Rare, which does soccer players from around the world. And they have different levels of rareness, and he'd got like the brown rare. So if you've played like an ultimate team in FIFA, it was kind of like that. He got the rarest card that he can get, and he was super pumped about it. Uh, but he, saw, he sees that very much as an investment. So yeah, that to me is an example of something that might be crossing the chasm. And what's interesting about that is the company behind the scenes, Dapper Labs, has built their technology stack not to be as decentralized as possible, but to be as scalable as possible in a way that can still be decentralized. So they're trying to get that best of both where like if Dapper Labs disappears or NBA Top Shop disappears, guess what? You still have that Joao Felix or that Jordan Game 6 in your wallet and somebody else that can work with the technology can make sure that you still get to view that, you still get to own it, we can still prove it's the original. So it, it's kind of like the Mona Lisa still has value regardless of which art gallery it's hanging at. Whereas in the traditional world of media and digital, 
if Spotify went down or iTunes went down, you might still have a claim on that piece of digital content that's sitting on the other server somewhere that you subscribe to, but like it's gone. And you, you had a whole bunch of digital content platforms that came around 2005 to 2010 that have disappeared and people bought and owned right. media that's now gone. They no longer own that. Whereas if you had the physical DVD, you'd still have that thing. And so this is, you think about the video game market with secondary markets and secondary sales. Like there's a whole bunch of stuff that becomes available once you've got this capacity. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we're seeing this space everywhere. Otis and Rally Road come to mind and they'll be on the show in a few months of just the opportunities to get involved in video games, sneakers, comic books, car shares, different playing cards, as you said. So it's really an opportunity for my generation, actually probably younger. I'm, I'm not as young as I think anymore to really get involved in these markets. So last thing I want to cover a bit of a pivot now, as you do sit in a bit of a media type role mm -hmm. um, at 11FS and a lot of content creation. We talked about this before the episode, but what are your thoughts on Clubhouse right now? And how is 11FS thinking about it, if at all, in the future of the platform? Yeah, so Clubhouse is interesting. So I sit here in the UK with massive FOMO on my Pixel 3. Um, kind of like, okay, you know, the post-pandemic, it was kind of awesome because for the first time, I think people looked outside their time zone and content became asynchronous. And Clubhouse felt like a backward step. Everything's at like PST and it's in the afternoon. Yeah. So I've got to get up at 2 2 a.m. in the morning to make any of this content. So by removing the asynchronous thing, maybe we broke something that was starting to succeed in the digital world. And so there's a risk on one side. The value on the other side is the great thing about podcasts is you can have a great conversation and you can scale it and it's asynchronous. The problem is you tend to put a bit of effort into it and sometimes you lose that bit of spark, that bit of magic, it gets edited away or somebody says something or it's that moment in time, that scarcity thing that we were talking about. Clubhouse has really tapped into that scarcity thing and the way that Snapchat did with photos and the way that TikTok's doing with videos, like actually throwaway content is super viral, super powerful. The FOMO instinct is really, really strong. So they've definitely tapped into something amazing. We were, we've, you know, David and Jason both have iPhones and they've started doing a lot of Clubhouse content. And what we're seeing is the beginning of a European fintech scene around Clubhouse starting to emerge, but it's not as international anymore. So like we can do that to a certain degree, but like, what does the international version of that look like, I guess is my question. But yeah, like there's interesting plans afoot that I can't really reveal. We want to do something pretty special in the not too distant future. That would be great. I'm looking forward to it. And yeah, I, the spontaneity, I'm a little bit glad because it's trying to hark back to a pre-COVID time where these spontaneous conversations can happen. Mm -hmm. I do find that traditional media, podcasting, et cetera, has gotten a little bit sanitized and there's just so much going on that when I see Clubhouse, I just it kind of takes me back to a more authentic, real conversation where there can be opportunities for spontaneity, people to not necessarily make mistakes, but for people to speak more off the cuff. And that's something that I miss. But like you said, it has a lot of room to improve because first of all, I get notifications on my phone 24-7 from the mm -hmm. app. It drives me crazy. And second, for me to try to listen to Elon Musk, I was up till 2, 3 in the morning, which is not sustainable. Yeah, I love Elon Musk. I'm all here for it. But if somebody could just record that stuff and send it to me, right. I'd be so happy. <laughs> or like somebody knows somebody at Clubhouse and like sorts out the Android version. I'll be your fintech ambassador for the European time zone. Like <laughs> hook a guy up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 
And then I, honestly, if I think if it were any other VC but Andreessen Horowitz, A16Z, I don't know if they would have the success they're having right now. That whole company is just throwing all of their weight behind Clubhouse. And that's how you can make it. Like, holy, mm -hmm. my goodness, that's how you do value add as an investor. Oh, my God. It's yeah, incredible. That's how you do it. Like, hat off to those guys. Shout out to everybody over. The team is amazing. I love their content. I'm so inspired by Angela's work. I think they're just absolutely awesome. Yeah, they, they are just unbelievable. So Simon, you've entered the final round of the episode, which is the rapid fire question round. We've got about eight to 10 questions for you, max 10 seconds or so each. Are you ready? Go. All right. Most underrated and overrated fintech trend. Oh God, I need seconds for that. Underrated. <laughs> Tough start. Yeah. Uh, underrated, probably multiplayer fintech, but that's coming. Um, most overrated, anything AI because it's great, but you need everything else in place for it to make sense. And you need a lot of data, which most people don't have. About toughest part about content creation and research that nobody knows? The grind. It's like, it's work, <laughs> scheduling guests, thinking out oh, the questions. Yeah. The insight comes easy. The ability to put that in an order that flows and that people can consume is where the work is. Like, I'm a big fan of Packy McCormack and Mario Gabriel, the not boring journalists. I think right. what they do is just insanely good and do not underestimate how much work that is. I completely agree. And when friends and classmates ask me, oh yeah, how's the podcast? It must be exhausting, you know, doing all these interviews. I said, the interview is the best part. That's the mm -hmm. easy part. I wish it were just the interviews. It's the post-production, the editing, the slicing and dicing, putting together different posts, thinking thoughtfully about questions, guest sourcing, like you said, it's a huge undertaking. And it makes you respect how good the top mainstream podcasts and producers are. Mm -hmm. So next question, favorite Twitter follow? Oh, ooh, 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 ooh. for the snark, I'm going to go Ron Shevlin. For <laughs> um, awesome. Koki Hostosis at FTT, I uh, love <laughs> Koki because you're always going to get good value. I think, oh God, my favorite Twitter follow is whoever just said the most insightful thing. It's not people, it's content. You know what? Who's the guy at Patio 11? I can't even remember. Patrick McKenzie from Stripe. Just mm. super high signal. But yeah, I should make a list of like people I follow and constantly end up in engagement with. That Maybe that's a takeaway from this. Yeah, I completely agree. And Koki also gives a decent amount of snark in her tweets, if you like Ron. <laughs> and actually, we just had Ron record an episode last week, so we'll have him on soon. He was fantastic. How about least favorite Twitter follow, if you have one? Yeah, they'd be muted or blocked. I just, you know what? Nobody's got time for that noise. Um, Definitely. I'm here to have fun and I'm here to learn. And Twitter is a superpower. Twitter DMs are amazing. So um, enjoy it, people. Um, don't be a dick. All right, last two questions. If you weren't at 11FS, what's your realistic and unrealistic dream job? <laughs> I know this sounds crazy, but I freaking love FinTech. Absolutely <laughs> love this. I don't, no, really. Like, I won't tell anyone. I want to tell David, you can tell the truth. <laughs> <laughs> no, genuinely. Like, yeah. it, it, my wife makes fun of me because in a weekend, like if I have a little bit of spare time, I want to get on Twitter and I want to be finding out about fintech. But here, right. like, the serious answer is like, if you understand, if you peel back the curtain of finance, there's a lot of jargon, but it's not that complicated. And if you can tweak the dials on that, you can have massive impact. And that really inspires me. So I'm, I absolutely love looking at the big like incumbent beast figuring out where the soft spots are and poking and helping people do that at scale and going, look, we could go there and we could really, really poke. And that's basically my job. So I'm 
feel super blessed to have that. I know not everybody gets to experience it. So gratitude beyond belief um, yeah. for what David and the guys gave me the opportunity to do. And so last question, what is your first blowout post-COVID vacation? The world's vaccinated, everything is back open. Where are you going? Oh, we, we just bought a house of so the garden and I'm hoping it's going to be sunny in the UK. No, seriously. But I, I need to get to the West Coast. I have never been to San Francisco. Never? Ever? In my whole life. That um, is shocking. Yep. So I think that's up there. And I'd love to do the Napa Valley and just kind of go work all the way my way back down the coast to LA and then probably go do South America. We're going to, my wife and I have just had this dream to take three months off and then just go down through LATAM and just see all of it. So that's the dream. That is a great dream. The Pacific Coast Highway is beautiful. I've driven it. It's awesome. Well, Simon, in closing, I want to thank you for coming on the Wharton FinTech podcast today. It was just fantastic to have you on. This was a great episode, and we're very excited to get it out to our listeners. Thank you so much for having me. If you want to know more about 11FS, we're at 11FS.com, and check us out on your favorite podcast app, FinTech Insider. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review. And if you're looking for more fintech content, subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton Fintech. There you will find articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I've linked our accounts in the episode description. I would also like to thank our editor, Rafael Ostria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Ryan Zauck.